0: What do you do if you come across part of the Bible that seems at first glance to contradict another part? The unbeliever of course will have no problem saying it's a contradiction, it's just a contradiction, the Bible's not inspired. Why should we expect it not to contradict itself? But what is the believer to do and what should the unbeliever do? Well, surely, were to do the same thing that we would do if someone we loved and trusted made two statements that, at first glance, seemed to contradict each other. If someone we loved and trusted made two apparently contradictory statements, would our first assumption be that one of those statements wasn't true? Well, no, it wouldn't be. What? Why not? Because we know their character, uh, we know their track record, Uh, and so we would say there must be a way of understanding these two things that they have said uh, in a way that they are both true. Uh, There must be. Obviously it's not a perfect illustration because even someone that we loved and trusted could contradict themselves either intentionally or unintentionally. But God cannot contradict himself but even if we regard the bible as completely trustworthy there are still two options when we come to bits of the bible that seem to contradict one another uh, not two equally valid options, but but two things that, that people uh, attempt to do uh, and the right option, the correct response uh, the thing that the vast majority of bible believing Christians have done over the centuries, is to use the clearer passages in the Bible to help us understand the bits that aren 't as clear. Even the Apostle Peter recognised that there are bits in Paul's writings that are hard to understand. But most of the Bible is clear and we are to understand the hard bits in light of the bits that are clear. I'll give you an example and I'll explain in a little bit why this is relevant to, the, to, to, relevant to today's beatitude. Uh, but here 's an example Jesus says in luke fourteen twenty six if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yea, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So we have a command there to hate uh, at least taken at face value but four chapters earlier in Luke ten 25 to 28, Jesus asks a lawyer what God's law says. And the lawyer answers, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbour as yourself. And Jesus responds by saying, You have answered correctly. So what do we do with that? In Luke 10, Jesus says we're to love our neighbour as ourselves whereas in Luke 14 Jesus says anyone who comes to him and does not hate father mother and so on cannot be his disciple you can't get more opposite than love and hate so what are we to do with that Well I'm not sure that even the unbeliever would say that Jesus is so conflicted that one minute he's telling us to love everyone and the next minute he's telling us to to hate even those closest to us. What we need to do is understand that in the one verse where Jesus says we are to hate, we're to understand that one verse in light of all the other verses where he says that we are to love And that will help us see that when Jesus says we are to hate father, mother and so on, he's saying that our love for him should be so intense that compared to it, our love for those closest to us on earth will look like hate. Just like compared to his glory as seen at the transfiguration, the whitest clothes on earth would have looked dirty he's making a comparison and he's saying it in a way that wants to make us sit up and pay attention that if there is a conflict between loyalty to God and loyalty to those who are our flesh and blood loyalty to God has to take preference Uh, this principle is called letting scripture interpret scripture It is that Scripture is its own best interpreter. And in particular, this means using the clearer parts of Scripture to interpret the harder parts. So where where are we going with this? Well, the reason I I bring this up is because there is another route that some Bible-believing Christians try to take. As far as I know, they don't apply their principles to those two verses I've quoted But if they consistently applied their principles they would say well we need to take these verses literally. So when Jesus says hate he means hate. So he must be telling one group of people to love and another group of people to hate. It's not a contradiction. He's just speaking to two different groups of people. Or perhaps he's speaking about two two eras of history maybe when Jesus is on earth his disciples are to hate people but when he goes back to heaven they are to love people now in some ways it's a bit of a silly example as far as I know no one has ever argued that from those particular verses but it's not a completely silly example because that is effectively what some people will do with scripture Now, you might not have noticed anything in the Sermon on the Mount that seems to contradict the rest of the New Testament's teaching. Uh, Most people who've read it over the centuries haven't, but some people do. Uh, And in particular, when Jesus says here, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. They'll say, well, that doesn't sound like grace. That doesn't sound like Jesus' other teaching. That doesn't sound like the Apostle Paul. That sounds a bit more like works. And so they conclude that Jesus can't be speaking to us. uh, And there must be some other group of people that Jesus is speaking to in the Sermon on the Mount. Because if he was speaking to Christians, uh, they say that Jesus would have put it the other way round. He would have made our receiving mercy from God the, the starting point, not the end point In other words, they think that Jesus is talking here about people who will receive mercy on the day of judgment because they have been merciful. In the same way, certain Christians will reject the Lord's Prayer or at least reject it for our use today. Because they say that to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, they say that that is to pray for forgiveness on the basis of the fact that we forgive others, rather than praying for forgiveness on the basis of God's grace. And you see what they're doing? They come to something that they think is a contradiction, though most Bible readers in history haven't thought that, but because... They, they don't want to say uh, they don't believe the Bible uh, because they, they're convinced the Bible is God's word. Uh, uh, and to their credit, they say, uh, or to their credit, they don't say that the Bible is full of contradictions. So we can't believe it. But neither do they say, well, we're going to understand the harder parts of the Bible in light of the clearer parts They don't ask the question, is there a way we can understand this that fits in with the rest of the New Testament's teaching? Instead, they say, well, Jesus must be teaching something different from the Apostle Paul. Uh, But but don't worry, he's not contradicting himself. He's just speaking to a different group of people. Now, that is a very long introduction to something that many of you have perhaps never encountered. Uh, I'll be thankful if you haven't. But there is a big principle, a bigger principle here for us all. Um, that it, it is we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. We need to let the clearer parts of Scripture interpret the bits that are less clear. So to apply all this uh, to uh, the beatitude in front of us and the objection that people sometimes raise... Is this beatitude a contradiction to God's grace? Is it calling us to show mercy to others in the hope that one day God will be merciful to us? Or can we understand it in light of the rest of the scripture that we are to show mercy to others based on what God has done for us? Now I get the concern Taken in isolation, verse 7 could be read as saying that if we receive mercy from God on the day of judgment, it will be on the basis of whether we have been merciful to others in this life. But if you take Bible verses in isolation, you can prove anything. Uh, Pretty much every heretic that there's ever been has said, I'm just teaching what the Bible says. The Jehovah's Witnesses do that. Yes, their version of the Bible deliberately changes parts of Scripture which which definitely do contradict their teaching. But in all of our Bibles there are verses that, that they can point to which seem to say that Jesus is less than God. But the question is never what does one verse say? Or or what do a lot of verses pulled out of context say? The question is, what is the overall message of the Bible? And are we going to understand those individual verses which we find harder to understand in light of the whole message? Or are we going to come up with an interpretation of the harder verses and then use that to reinterpret everything else? Or will we do what we should do and understand the harder passages in light of the many, many, many more passages that are clear? Taken in isolation, we we could understand verse 7 to be saying that people will receive mercy not on the basis of God's grace, but on the basis of their being merciful to others, uh, on their, effectively, on their good, good works in being merciful to others. But in order to see that that's not the case, all we have to do is one simple thing, and that is to refuse to take verse 7 in isolation. We simply have to refuse to take this one beatitude in isolation. And so, uh, firstly today, we want to look at this beatitude in the context of the rest of the beatitudes. Uh, And then we want to look at it in the context of Jesus' other teaching. So firstly, uh, reading verse 7 in context... I think I've said in every sermon on these Beatitudes that it is vitally important to realise that each one follows on from what comes before. The first one is about realising where we stand before God. It's about grasping our spiritual poverty. It's about realising that we have nothing we could possibly bring to the table in order for God to accept us. This realisation is then followed in the second beatitude this morning. Or, or, or sorry, followed in the, 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 the second beatitude that, that we, look, we looked at a few weeks ago about mourning. Uh, not mourning over the death of a loved one, but mourning over sin. Not just uh, realising in our head that we're sinners, but, but being crushed by it saying like the prophet Isaiah and others who have been brought face to face with God, woe is me. And then by God's grace, what will flow from that is meekness. A meek person is someone who has accepted God's estimate of his own life. So those first three Beatitudes are all about realising where we stand before God. And they lead up to the central Beatitude which as we saw last week, is coming to Jesus for the righteousness he offers. It's putting on the wedding garment he provides, uh, just as in the parable. To use the illustration I used last week, the first three Beatitudes are realising that you can't stay in Sudan because you'll be killed. Uh, The fourth Beatitude is actually getting on the plane. It's the rescue flight because only when we're covered with the righteousness of Christ can we be safe from the wrath of God. And then the rest of the Beatitudes describe what our life will be like once we touch down in the UK. The man I mentioned last week, the the teacher from Derry who who fled Sudan. How did he describe his feelings when he landed? He said he was thankful to be home. And how thankful are we to be covered in Jesus' righteousness? We see our guilt, we experience his grace and we respond with gratitude. And in the rest of the Beatitudes, that spirit of gratitude is lived out you could try and rhyme it and say something like, like show your gratitude by by living out the rest of the Beatitudes. Uh, but, But that's gratitude, it's seen in our being merciful to others, it's seen in our pursuing pure hearts, and it's seen in our trying to be peacemakers. The first three Beatitudes, they lead up to receiving Christ's righteousness, And then the next three describe how receiving Christ's righteousness will affect our lives going forward. So from the very context of the Beatitudes, we see that it's not about us showing mercy to others in the hope that we will receive mercy one day. It's that we show mercy because God in Christ has been merciful to us. It's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So if we look at the Beatitudes as a step-by-step picture of salvation, as arranged in logical order rather than randomly, then this Beatitude about showing mercy to others is exactly where we would expect to find it. It isn't the starting point but it comes after salvation has been experienced. The starting point is where we realise where we stand before God, then comes receiving the righteousness of Christ, then comes living differently in light of God's mercy to us. Uh, So if if you want one uh, three-point sermon on the Beatitudes, that's it. It's realising where we stand, receiving Christ's righteousness, and then it's living differently as a result. And as we come to this beatitude today, we, we're, in the, we're in the third point. Uh, we're, we're in the bit about living differently as a result. So the first way to properly understand this beatitude is to read it in the context of the rest of the beatitudes. The second way to make sure we read it properly is to read it in light of Jesus' other teaching. Obviously we don't have time today to summarise all of Jesus' other teaching and show how uh, the Sermon on the Mount and this Beatitude fits in. Uh, But we can go to one other place uh, where Jesus talks about mercy and that is the parable of the unmerciful servant. Uh, We read it earlier in Matthew 18. In that parable, a servant is forgiven a massive debt, more than he could ever pay in his whole lifetime. But he immediately goes out and finds someone who owes him a a minuscule amount in comparison. Uh, And he begins to to choke him and demand money from him. And when his master hears about it, he, he throws the servant in jail until he can pay everything he owes. Now, what is that parable teaching? Is it teaching that we are to show mercy to others in the hope that one day God will be merciful to us? Is it teaching that the servant should have forgiven his fellow servant because then maybe his master would have forgiven him? no not at all it's teaching that we must be merciful to others because God has been so merciful to us it's teaching that the servant should have forgiven his fellow servant because he had already been forgiven the massive debt it's teaching that we should be willing to forgive people their comparatively small sins against us in light of the massive sins that God has forgiven us for Uh, The question that led to Jesus telling that parable was being asked about how many times we should forgive someone. Uh, And so the teaching is that, that if someone says they have been forgiven by God but refuse to forgive their brother, then it shows that they haven't really been forgiven. In other words, if someone isn't merciful, it shows that they aren't saved. But on the other hand, if someone is merciful, it's evidence of God's grace in their lives. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy, he's saying that they are blessed because the fact that they are merciful is proof that their heart has already been changed by God. It's proof that God has shown mercy to them. And on the day of judgment, They will receive mercy. Why? Because they've been merciful? No. But because they were a saved man, woman, boy or girl. And the mercy that they showed to others on earth was simply evidence of that. As I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, meekness, which is the third beatitude, is listed as one of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And... We can actually say about all the Beatitudes that they're all fruit of the Spirit in a sense. They're all things that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. So there's nothing different between the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' other teaching or between the Sermon on the Mount and Paul's teaching. And with that all said, we come to the question of what is mercy? So what is mercy? Again, we're helped if we look at the rest of Jesus' teaching, in particular the story of the Good Samaritan. Boys and girls, do you remember how the story of the Good Samaritan ends? Jesus asks, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell in among the robbers? So Jesus asked that there have been three men who've walked past the man lying on the ground. First two have walked right past and only the third one has helped. So Jesus said, which of these is the neighbours? And of course we know which, which one it is. We know it's the Samaritan. Though, though in response, the, the lawyer who's been trying to test Jesus, he can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. And he simply says the one who had mercy on him. But he is right. Uh, The Good Samaritan is a good example of showing mercy. One definition of the word for mercy that Jesus uses here is kindness or concern expressed for someone in need. Kindness or concern expressed for someone in need. It could also be translated as compassion or pity. It has the idea of opening your heart to someone's need. How how open is your heart to the needs of those around you? Especially the needs of those who, in a sense, don't deserve your kindness. There's a verse in Hosea that Jesus quotes twice in the Gospel of Matthew. So it's three times in the Bible overall. And it's where, where God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The first time Jesus quotes it, he quotes it to Pharisees who are complaining that he eats with tax collectors and sinners. The second time he uses it, he quotes it to Pharisees who are complaining that his disciples are eating grain as they walk through the fields on the Sabbath. Both times he quotes it, it's to people who were confident that they ticked all the boxes of orthodox belief and yet their hearts were closed to those around them. Jesus says elsewhere that some parts of the law are weightier than others. All of God's law is important, but we need to make sure that what we are emphasising are the weightier matters of the law, which Jesus defines as justice and mercy and faithfulness. The Pharisees were theologically orthodox. They were hugely respected and revered by the ordinary people. But many of them weren't going to make it into heaven. Shockingly, many of them weren't going to make it into heaven. Their failure to show mercy to others was proof that they had not received mercy from God. They weren't saved. Their hearts weren't right before him. Uh, to use Jesus' words to Nicodemus, they hadn't been born again. Someone has said that God hates a religion devoid of love and mercy and kindness. God hates a religion devoid of love and mercy and kindness. And it is frighteningly easy to have a religion that is devoid of love and and mercy and kindness a religion that that ticks the boxes a religion that knows what is appropriate behavior in church a religion that can detect uh, any hint of heresy but a religion that is devoid of love and mercy and kindness Uh, what a warning all this is to us some of us here know a lot of theology we're very familiar with the bible but how open are our hearts to others? Especially those who aren't family members and those who have nothing to offer in return. Those who have no real claim on our kindness. Do our hearts need to be warmed? I'm sure that there are, there are some things that, that if, if you want to open them you need to warm them up first. First and uh, maybe as they get, they, they get warmed up they begin to open uh, and so uh, perhaps our hearts need to be warmed by the love of Christ that they might uh, open to those around us and if your heart is open to those around you and I'm thankful that I can look out today on many uh, and have good reason to say that your hearts are open to others then those merciful hearts will be evidence on the day of judgment uh, that you will receive mercy. Uh, you will receive mercy not on the basis of your your merciful heart, but on the basis of what Jesus did for you on the cross. But just for our final few minutes today, I think one danger is that we could leave here simply thinking of mercy as practical care and compassion for others. But think of what it means for God to show mercy to us. Titus 3.5 He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Or Hebrews 4.16 Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God's mercy to us is primarily spiritual rather than physical. And surely that has to impact our thinking when it comes to to what we think showing mercy to others looks like. What do you picture when you think of a community where people are shown mercy? What would what would a town look like where people are shown mercy? What would it look like? Food banks, homeless shelters, debt counselling, people being helped to find employment. All these things can be expressions of mercy. But if that community, if that town has no gospel preaching church, then there is little chance of the people in that place receiving the mercy they really need. Mes McConnell is a minister who's just left a church in one housing scheme in Edinburgh that's now well established to, to start a church in another housing scheme. He wrote a book a couple of years ago about poverty in the UK and the responsibility of the local church. And in it he said, we as Christians talk about social justice and loving the poor. But the reality is that many of our poorest communities are thrown to the spiritual wolves of heretical whack-job charismatics, prosperity churches and other fringe lunatics as evangelicals focus on the educated and elite classes. In other words, if we as UK Christians really love the poor, we'll do what we can to make sure there are healthy gospel churches in our poorest communities. Yes, there's loads of scope for churches to be showing mercy in our communities in really practical ways. That's one reason God has established the office of deacon uh, and why we need to be praying for deacons. Too often deacons in churches are left looking after the the building uh, and there's no sense of, of how can we try and meet the needs of people around about us. But actually what some of you have been doing in inviting friends and family members to our special services in two weeks time is a mercy ministry. As you've invited them along and are praying that they might experience God's mercy. That is being merciful to them. But on the other hand if you could look out at this community, at your unbelieving friends and family and have no concern for your souls If it wouldn't cross your mind to invite them to church, then surely it is evidence that you yourself have not yet experienced God's mercy in Christ. Only when you do that, only when you experience that, will your heart truly be open to others. And so, just as we close today, what is your hope for getting into heaven? Is it that you go to church? Is it that you read the Bible? Is it that you are kind to others? Or is it that God has been merciful to you? That was the Apostle Paul's answer. Formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor and insolent opponent. But, but what? But I received mercy. The only reason any of us will be in heaven is because we received mercy undeserved kindness through Jesus Christ and one of the strongest evidences that we have received mercy will that will be us showing undeserved kindness to those that God in his providence brings into our lives blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy amen We'll close today by singing about the cross, the place where God's mercy and truth showed that they weren't conflicted uh, because in God's mercy, Jesus took God's wrath against our sins in order that we could go free. Uh, We're singing from Psalm 85b on page 192. Psalm 85b, uh, starting on page 191, uh, but on verse 4 over the page, uh, we read truth, met with mercy, righteousness and peace, kissed mutually. What's that describing? It's describing the cross, uh, where God could be merciful to us, uh, but also be faithful to himself, be true to his own character. And in light of the cross, will we not be merciful to others? Merciful in how we think about others. Merciful in the assumptions that we make about why people do things merciful in the words that we choose when we speak to others, merciful in praying for others, and merciful in our actions towards them. Psalm 85b will stand to sing praise.